the emotional whims of people can uh, drive a lot of this as well. So those are issues. But I think beyond that, I think the more... We tune in for another episode of Make That Radio Show. I have your host, Andres, and I have Mike, uh, Katie, who is uh, actually, this is the first company I've come across where they are committed to solving America's housing shorting and affordability crisis. So Mike, I think that's one, that's a very ambitious uh, goal that your company has. And I love the fact that uh, you, yeah, I was able to build this company to 200 million. Um, I was reading about and watching the video that you had posted on LinkedIn about how you had to, you know, enthrall yourself into the business due mm-hmm. to the passing of your dad, which, you know, sorry to hear about that. Um, but in doing so, let's uh, start there. So I imagine growing up, because it was a family business, you at least got to, you know, see it from a bird's eye view before you was thrust into it. Yeah. Well, I'll take a quick step back at a really high level. What we do is pretty simple. We design, build, and rent apartments, but we're focused on driving down the cost of mm-hmm. construction. We've been achieving about a 20 to 30% reduction in those costs, and we believe that someday we'll achieve a 50% reduction. But imagine what that means. I mean, someday your rent or your mortgage payment could be half. Yeah. And now to your question, yeah, growing up, I lived it, right? I was there with my family. In fact, we would build these really small apartment buildings. And at one point, we even lost everything. My dad was kidnapped in Peru. Crazy side story there. Mm -hmm. But as as I grew up, I got to see what it was like. I was sweeping out apartments. It was hammering uh, nails into walls. I was pretty worthless, but but that gave me an opportunity to understand the world of construction. And then I went off to school and I wanted nothing to do with the family business when I went to college. Mm-hmm. And the reason that was, was that I didn't want people to think it was given to me. I was really mm-hmm. wrestling with my own ego. My dad really wanted me to join the business But what I realized deep down is that I wanted to make some kind of meaningful, positive impact in the world, or at least dedicate my life trying to do that. And I realized that this opportunity I had to take this very small business at the time and grow it to something much larger that could have that impact, that I had to put my ego aside and jump in to help make that a reality. So how was it learning, you know, all the Particulars of construction and things of the nature, which I imagine, you know, very analytical, more of the business side savvy uh, when it comes to the actual trade and knowing, you know, that your decisions can impact, you know, how that functions. How how was that transition? Yeah, it was a challenging transition. There's a lot, a lot to learn. If you look in the world of construction, you have a lot of people that, you know, their great granddad did it this way. And my granddad did it this way. And by golly, I am going to do it this way mm-hmm. as well. 
And that's just not conducive to making meaningful change and improvement. Mm -hmm. You know, if you look at other industries like manufacturing, they have improved labor productivity by 760% over the past 60 years. Mm -hmm. Agriculture has improved it by 1,500%. But during that same time period, construction has done virtually nothing at just 10%. And so if we take the lessons learned from these other industries and apply it to our own, we can see meaningful success. I mean, if we just got stuck in our ways and we were building cell phones, if we were building cell phones the way that construction is done, we would have giant (laughs) $10,000 bricks that we were still talking on, right? Yeah. We don't accept that in other industries, but why in the world do we accept it within construction and housing? We shouldn't. Mm -hmm. We need to make a change. So being this disruptor, you know, that's what I look at what y'all was doing when you started to go down that path. Um, how did the initial uh, community take it in y'all being that disruptor? Were they, you know, trying to push back and or did it take for y'all to amass some type of project to where once it was completed, you're able to show data supporting the uh, decision-making and then they jumped forward? Yeah, it's, it's a challenge because most people don't always see the vision you might have as a business leader. And it's certainly true for me. And, and there's another part of it too. It's, it's that they don't see your vision, but you also don't have the skill sets initially, right? You've mm-hmm. got to learn to figure this out and you screw things up along the way. That's part of the process. Mm-hmm. People don't like that, but that's the reality of it. And I remember, um, so kind of jumping past part of the story, but my, my dad unfortunately passed away. Uh, not long after I joined. And I remember after my dad passed away that we jumped in to work on a new project. It's called Amberwood Apartments. And the city and I didn't have the the greatest relationship, partly because, again, my fault. I didn't know what I was doing all the time. But the city actually shut me down twice. And the second mm-hmm. time they shut me down, they, they pulled me in their offices. It's one of the hardest meetings I ever had. They looked me in the eye and said, Mike, you don't have what it takes. You don't know what you're doing. You need to hire someone that can manage what you're doing here. Mm-hmm. Hard pill to swallow. <laughs> yeah. And we uh, we'd a race to find someone because otherwise we'd be shut down completely. Mm-hmm. We ended up finding someone in just three days, which is the worst way to hire. I don't recommend that. It was <laughs> a bit of a it's a disaster side story. Yeah. But um, we hired this guy who was sort of the front man between us and the city. We did a lot of work behind the scenes, getting everything done that needed to be done. And I remember a few weeks before we were supposed to open, the we did the water test on the water main, and we figured out that there was a pinhole leak somewhere in this water main that was 15 feet in the ground and was more than 1,500 feet long. Mm-hmm. And we had to find that pinhole leak. Boy, I, we had no idea where it was. I remember being out there in my fairly nice clothes uh, with the excavator digging for days from, from sunrise to sunset every day over and over again, trying to find this leak. Mm-hmm. Eventually, we did find it. And I remember a few days before we were supposed to open, the city staff was on site and they said, there's no way, you're not opening. I mean, we got like 100 families about to move in. And they have nowhere to go unless we can get permission to open the building. Mm-hmm. We worked through the night, long hours. And I remember the last day, about a half a dozen inspectors 
came in to do a deep dive into the entire building, looking at every nook and cranny of that building. Mm-hmm. At the end of the inspection, the head building official pulls me inside and says, Mike, I know we were hard on you, but honestly, this is the nicest project that we've built in our city. Mm-hmm. I was like, um, Finally, (laughs) finally feeling a little bit like I, or we can do this, but there's so much of that time. You always feel like you're not good enough that you can't do it. And that's a, that's a challenge for any business leader to overcome. Yeah. I would imagine that at that particular point, that was a confidence booster um, for you and, you know, for the business going forward. Am I correct in that? I guess the assessment. Absolutely. Before that point, every day I felt like I wasn't good enough. After that, still was struggling. Right? There's still plenty of areas to learn and grow, mm-hmm. but I felt much better about the world. Like maybe we're on the right path. <clears throat> At what point um, did your goals or knowing that you set goals for the business and what you want to accomplish, at what point was it like really scary for you? Because I've heard, you know, a lot, if you don't have goals that scare you, then your goals aren't big enough. Mm-hmm. At what point was it, you know, a little terrifying, but also I guess you would say thrilling and exciting to go and try to accomplish it? Every step of the way is frankly terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, I do like that point though. I, I've known a lot of incredible leaders. I've known many, many billionaires. And I've known a lot of people that look back at their life and think to themselves, I wish I had done more, right? I wish mm-hmm. I actually I should set higher goals. I didn't mm-hmm. realize that this was more obtainable than I thought possible. And for me, I think one of the key moments is when my dad passed away. Mm-hmm. Because it reminded me how short life really is. Mm -hmm. I don't want to waste my time on this earth not having the kind of impact I want to have, right? And so because of that, I think a lot about not wasting those minutes I have each day. So that really inspires me and challenges me to set really big goals. I much rather have an impossible goal that I fail on then they mm-hmm. have an easy goal and achieve it. And for us, mm-hmm. over the next decade, our goal is to reach 192,000 units with a 60,000 unit per year pace. And at that sort of scale, mm-hmm. we can then start having a meaningful impact on housing mm-hmm. affordability and availability. Mm-hmm. But it's terrifying, right? Like mm-hmm. the steps to get there are incredibly hard, but I'd rather have that goal and fail than have mm-hmm. an easy goal and achieve it. Hmm. So are you... Uh, where, where all do y'all reach as far as real estate development, um, affordable housing? Is it just your immediate circumference geographical area, or are y'all like you know 100 miles out, 20 miles out? Yeah, we are uh just within Minnesota at this point, although we do have some manufacturing capability in Wisconsin, and about 15% of our staff are actually international. Um, we are looking to expand into Texas. That's sort of the next area that we're planning to go into. Um, but yeah, I, the, the key thing is you've got to solve the, those costs. And so right now we're focused on building the system that builds those housing so that we're driving down those costs very consistently. 
And once that system gets really solidified, we want to replicate it uh, beyond where we're at. So affordable housing has been like an issue in a hot topic, I would say, for like years now, to the point where, you know, you see celebrities getting into it, um, you know, you know, change the environments that they think. Um, what have you experienced in your career to why it's that particular way? Is it the systems that are set up, you know, from a, a municipality standpoint that are affecting it? Is it greed, you know, saying that's affecting it? What, what would you, what commonalities have you seen? At a really high level, it's simply supply and demand. There's not okay. enough housing being produced to outstrip that demand, and therefore prices rise. Now, the deeper level to that is you can't produce enough buildings at the cost point you need to, right? Mm -hmm. And so the, the core issue is you have to drive down the core construction costs so you can actually produce at a level that the, the country needs. And there's so many factors that go into that. I, I will say that cities can sometimes hold people up. I have developer mm -hmm. friends out in California. The worst I've ever heard is it took them 10 years to get approval. It's insane. Wow. For us, oftentimes it's about a year, which again is quite a long time. Mm -hmm. And we've had projects that will go all the way, have, you know, have full support of the staff, have full support of the planning commission, and then somebody on city council just doesn't want an apartment building in that particular location or what have you, and they just stop the whole project. So it's like the emotional whims of people can uh, drive a lot of this as well. So those are issues. But I think beyond that, I think the more fundamental issue is about fixing the core construction costs. Because mm -hmm. right now it's quite expensive for people to build those buildings. But mm -hmm. if you can build them in a similar way that we build or manufacture vir virtually anything else, mm -hmm. we can see meaningful reduction in those costs. So you said uh, you're growing, you want to grow into Texas. Uh, how are you like? scouting and picking like locations for these areas that are more seen as meaning towards innovation or these areas where you know there's going to be a, you want to heavily invest to change the culture in that area so i like texas a lot for a number of reasons one is there's a lot of populate population density in a mm -hmm like three to four hour drive of each other. It's amazing that way. So we can actually build out a lot of capacity to produce units mm -hmm. and not have to, you know, re rebuild that over and over again. So that's one thing. Um, second thing is actually it's proximity to Mexico because we've actually looked at outsourcing or not outsourcing, but just doing some of the work in Mexico and moving some of those components to the United States. Um, another thing I really like about Texas is it tends to be freer, right? It's just generally easier. It's not like California. It's not, it's not 10 years to get approval. Uh, it tends to be a little bit more uh, business focused. So that's great. When we look at individual sites here, at least in Minnesota, we look for a few different things. One is how, how good is the overall community? How good is the parks, the schools, the environment? Um, is it new? Is it up and coming? Is it uh, got great commercial zoning and things nearby it? Um, and then another part of it, frankly, over the last few years, has just been availability of land. Uh, a lot of times it's just hard to get any land. And so that limits what selection you have available as well. Mm -hmm. Considering the uh, 
how big the business is, right? Two hundred million. Right? So congratulations on that. That is phenomenal. Yeah. Um, and I know it took a lot, and we'll get into the steps it took. But uh, I want the people to know what's a, a typical day to day for you in running the business that matters. Because you know you can't do everything. I say as business owners. And we have to be able to hire the proper people, put them, make sure they're in the right place for things to grow. So what's the typical day? Really interesting question. Um, there's a handful of things that I focus on. Uh, so one, I've got one-on-one -on -one meetings with all my direct reports. I have team meetings with those team members. I also spend quite a bit of time on culture and people. So I actually do a lot of the orientations because I think it's really important to set that right tone with people up front. Uh, we do engagement surveys and I get feedback from that. And I'm involved with the changes related to that. For example, this week on Thursday, I've got uh, five back-to-back -back meetings. They're two mm -hmm. hours a piece of just meeting with team members mm -hmm. that are making meaningful recommendations on how we improve uh, the culture. Uh, so that's really important to me. The... Uh, then I do a lot of public outreach kind of stuff. That's maybe 20 mm -hmm. or 30% of my time. Being on podcasts or last week mm -hmm. on ABC in Los Angeles or speaking at conferences, uh, uh, do quite a bit of that. But then the last chunk of time I would say is any major initiative of the company. So mm -hmm. right now for us, it's about raising capital. So I'm very focused with that team working on capital raising and trying to rev, rev uh, and develop that infrastructure out. It's a lot. Uh, I can only <laughs> imagine, like, you know what I'm saying, all the fires you had to put out. But let's, let's dive into that. How were you able to grow a business to that size? Like, give us, uh, you know, retrospect as far as, like, how big was the family business, you know, while you was being indoctrinated into it? <laughs> yeah. And then... Compared to, you know, growing it to 200 million, what, what was the steps that you had to take to get it to that size? You know, it's huge. A lot of businesses don't even get that big. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So when I started, there was about a, maybe when I started full time, there was about a half a dozen or so employees. We're now at about 220 or so. Mm -hmm. um, so we've seen a lot of growth. I think. What I have experienced mm -hmm. is every step along the way, there's something that hits you in the face that would stop most people. And it's something you've never had experience with before. And now you have to learn it and figure it out to get past that next item. And then as soon as you get past that thing, another thing hits you in the face. Uh, so early on, it was things like, getting relationships with city council members and getting it so that people could trust what we were doing, even though I'm just some pipsqueak kid out there and having kind of some basic buildings underneath our belts so we can show people that the work is being done well. Uh, we ran into like, how do we get approval through city council? So things like learning the importance of high quality renderings. And there's a huge difference mm -hmm. between the average rendering and high quality renderings and dealing with all of that. Um, once we started really speeding up our pace, we ran into um, culture. Like I didn't understand how critical a culture was originally and like <laughs> learning to hire the very best. When we talk about the very best, I truly mean the very yeah. best. It's people that are changing the world. We, uh, 
we have people who will fly in from other states to come work during the week and fly them home on the weekend. One of our employees in 2007, Steve Jobs, announces the iPhone. He mm-hmm. walks off stage, and one of our employees walks on that same stage following Steve Jobs' announcement. It's that mm-hmm. kind of caliber of people. That was mm-hmm. another lesson I had to learn and get past. Then we had to build out, so it's not good enough just to have the right culture, but now you've got to get the machine that can hire those people. We ran into mm-hmm. a significant issue, which is that no one can hire anyone. And we then built out a whole infrastructure to making that a reality. We no longer have a problem hiring people. And not only that, our acceptance rate into the company is 0.4%, which is completely unheard of in this industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's significantly better than anyone else. Um, so we got past that part of it. But then, you know, more recently, interest rates rose, right? And so all of our financing was simply bank debt, which works mm-hmm. great because the banks were giving us about 75% of the value of the project. It only cost us about 75%, which again is unheard of in our industry. But now that interest rates have risen, bank loans have gone down. Uh, and so now we have got to raise capital like anyone else it had to in the past. Um, so now I'm having to learn capital raising, right? Which is a whole new skill set that's hitting me in the face, living to learn and growing. And uh, that's just kind of been my experience is, are you capable of solving enough challenging problems quickly? And if you built up a team to also help you solve those problems quickly, and if you can do that, then you can scale and grow, grow up. If you can't, or if you don't have the, the stomach for it, you're going to stay small for a long time. So, in, in doing that, did you ever envision yourself um, growing as the business owner and the CEO that you have? Because um, I'm sure you know, as you were younger, you said, like you said, you went to college and stuff, probably envisioned yourself in a different life path. But then things happen. Are you able to go back and reflect and like, wow, I've gotten to this particular point in my life that a lot of people really don't get to see and don't get to experience. I think there's someone, something a little bit miswired in my brain in some sense, because I've always wanted to take on the biggest, hardest, most challenging problems I could find. Mm-hmm. And I think that again, it goes back to the fact life is so short and then I want to make a meaningful impact here on earth while I'm here. So early on when I was in junior high school, I was big into like making films and we, uh, we got into special effects. We were building, doing 3d animation. Mm -hmm. You know, this is back when like toy story was coming out. Like we were Mm -hmm. also doing 3d animation There's a bunch of like junior high school kids. In fact, I remember we would stay up all night studying the textbook and how to do 3D animation. Next morning, we'd invite all of our friends over and we'd be teaching mm-hmm. them 3D animation. So then they, mm-hmm. they could do these animations for us. And we had uh, like hundreds of volunteers work on these things, again, as a junior hire. Mm-hmm. Um, went after college and I would, <laughs> I would see how far I could push myself. So in college, uh, I went to the University of Minnesota Mm-hmm. A normal full load was 16 credits. Mm-hmm. The The most you could do was 20 credits. Mm-hmm. Anything beyond that required additional permission. And mm-hmm. for one quarter, so just half a semester, I did 27 credits. Ooh, wow. And 
I looked for the hardest classes I could find. And the hardest class mm -hmm. I could find that I had on that roster was honors abstract algebra. It was a mm -hmm. graduate level honors level course that didn't deal in numbers, didn't deal in letters. It dealed entirely in proofs. It was mm -hmm. so hard. And there were literal, like, I'm not exaggerating, like literal geniuses in that class mm -hmm. that are probably revolutionizing maths today. And uh, I was just barely like keeping up with everyone, but I just wanted again to see how far I could push myself to see if I could really get to that mm -hmm. next level. And so, yeah, I guess in some sense, I've always had that dream to make a much bigger impact than the average person. But I think if, if, if a listener doesn't have that same tenacity, that doesn't mean you can't have that level of impact. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's just how I have, uh, how I've grown up. Um, I, I read an interesting question. I mean, profile says, you know, that you're ready to answer. And I love stuff like this. So I wanted to dive a little bit into it. How does the Federal Reserve interest rate changes affect real estate development? Ooh, great question. They have a huge impact. So the Fed sets the short-term rates. Basically, they do this by offering those loans at a cheap rate. There's some technicality behind it, but they set the short-term rates. Most of construction financing is based upon that short-term rate plus a spread. Mm -hmm. So let's say their short-term rate is 5%. Say the spread is 3%. I'm paying 8%. Mm -hmm. If they now raise it from 5 to 10 I'm now paying 13%. Mm. So that rate uh, changes and changes my direct costs. Mm -hmm. It also affects the long-term rates. Not as connected, but the number one rate that everyone looks into in um, real estate is the 10-year treasury. Mm -hmm. So those are a little bit loosely connected. The Fed doesn't directly control the 10-year treasury, but the 10-year treasury sets a lot of the rates you can get after construction is done. Now, the cost of interest is one problem, but the bigger issue actually is that they determine the size of the loan based upon the payments you have to make every month. And those payments are based upon the interest rate. So at a low interest rate loan, you can get a much larger loan amount than you can get if it's a higher interest rate loan. And because of that, Banks now, when they were offering maybe a 75% of the value of the project, so if you have a $100 million project, they would offer you $75 million. Mm -hmm. They're now down only offering $55 million because of that mm -hmm. formula. And so for many developers, uh, the, the math doesn't pencil anymore. It doesn't financially make sense to mm -hmm. move forward. And so we're actually seeing a drop nationwide by like 70 to 80% in new apartment starts, meaning that new projects are not starting, or they're only 30% that they were a year ago because the numbers just don't make sense anymore. Now, for us, we're in a good spot because those numbers still make sense, but now we're just having to raise capital in a way that we didn't have to do before. But this is yeah. very similar to what other developers normally have to do. Yeah. I'd say it is something else right there. So uh, give us the, like, you know, the long term for 
the company, uh, Norhart. Uh, did I say that correctly? Norhart? Yeah, Norhart. Okay. Yeah, your long term impact that you want to have. And then also, uh, it sounds to me, uh, based off your story, that, you know, like I was saying earlier, you are like a disruptor. So I look at y'all as a leader in your industry. Um, how big the geographical area is in the nation. Also, have y'all seen other companies come up and try to emulate what y'all are doing? Yeah, a uh, lot of great questions there. Uh, so have we seen other companies try to emulate what we're doing? Absolutely. I think there's people that are trying to have success there. One example is full volumetric construction. Uh, there are developers even here in Minnesota that are doing that. Um, what's interesting though, at least the developers we've spoken to, is that they're not really solving for costs. What they're really solving for is speed, right? You can build the building much, much faster because you're just dropping these modulars or these pods into place mm -hmm. to get the building to be built. Um, that does reduce costs a little bit because you have less interest expense during the build phase. But um, uh, there's there's other things like uh, 3D printed homes, which I think is super cool. But again, it's not really feasible from a cost perspective yet. I think these are all like technical solutions to pieces of the problem. But what we're really trying to do is solve the entire cost puzzle. And frankly, mm -hmm. there is much simpler techniques that you can use to reduce costs that don't involve 3D printing. Um, but I think 3D printing is, is probably the future. Mm -hmm. Now, what is our dream long-term? Well, our dream long-term is to solve housing affordability. We're mm -hmm. hoping to reach 192,000 units with a 60,000 unit per year pace in about 10 years. Mm -hmm. And um, that would be in many other states here in the United States. It wouldn't just be Minnesota. Now, one of the important things to think about here is that people often look at our website and they say, Mike, talk about housing affordability. But the rates on your website, they're about the same as everyone else. You're no cheaper. Like, what the heck is going on? Mm -hmm. Well, that's intentional. See, what we're doing over this next decade is we're taking the profits we're earning from those properties mm -hmm. and we're putting it into the system that builds housing. Mm -hmm. Elon Musk talks about how it's hard to produce a car, but it is 10 to 100 to 1,000 times harder to build the system that builds that car. And that's what we're working to do is to build that system. And mm -hmm. it's incredibly expensive. It's incredibly time-consuming and hard to do. But that's really what we're working to build up over the next decade is the system to build housing more affordably and at scale. Yeah, because I imagine as you do that, you know, like you said, at scale, you'll be able to produce way more mm -hmm. and then really start to knock down that housing, you know, what I'm saying affordability crisis that we're in to where you'll be able to supply the demand at the actual time of the demand. As opposed to people who don't have to do whatever that they have to do to secure, uh, you know, shelter and stuff for themselves. So uh, I was uh, looking at, you know, you also have a podcast as well. Yeah. Um, how have you, uh, one, why, you know, do a podcast, but then also how has uh, doing that, you know, helped? With uh, your vision, or is it more of a like creative outlet where you get to put out the information? 
Yeah. Uh, most businesses understand the value of the dollar, mm -hmm. right? Making sure you have cash flow in the business. If that's not working properly, you're not going to succeed. Mm -hmm. But there's something else that many business owners understand, but not in a deep way. Mm -hmm. And that is the value of attention. Mm -hmm. Attention is a commodity much like the dollar is in that you need to build that up in order to have more success in your business. And so we started realizing that and realized we need to build a connection with a wider audience uh, in order for people to know, like, and trust us, to help support us in solving this nationwide and frankly, probably worldwide issue. Mm -hmm. And so that's what started us down the journey of content creation. So we have a podcast. It's called Zero to Unicorn. It's about mm -hmm. the journey of small businesses growing to a billion dollar scale. And one of my favorite guests was mm -hmm. Michael Usland. He's mm -hmm. the executive producer and the originator of Batman. Mm -hmm. In fact, when he got the movie rights, which he just <laughs> barely got fairly young, mm -hmm. it took him 10 years, 10 years of pleading and begging and going to studios and people and networking and events to eventually get the ability to actually make the movies a reality. So his story is inspiring. We've had billionaires on the show, just incredible mm -hmm. people that are changing the world. And so, yeah, we uh, we have that podcast. We have a few other shows and things that we're doing as well. But it has been a lot of fun to see grow because now we're in the millions of views, but that helps tremendously. And I'll give you a, a little tidbit of how that does. Mm -hmm. I went to, a, so I speak at a lot of events. I was not speaking at this event that I was at last week. People got word that I was there mm -hmm. at the end of the event. I had a line of people looking to meet with me that mm -hmm. lasted over an hour, which to mm -hmm. me is like crazy, right? I I, mm -hmm. I kind of think of myself as just nobody. Like, why are you talking to me? <laughs> but the power behind that uh -huh. is now, like I can help them, but they're also helping me on our journey of improving our business. That has a really surprisingly positive impact in all that you do. Yeah, I, I definitely uh, see where that impact. And like you said, you get to access more millions of people. People get to resonate. And uh, I tell people all the time, now is about, I've been podcasting since 2016. Wow. And yeah, I did it because I was an artist at the time putting out music. Now I was going on other people's platforms and I wasn't able to resonate with the audience like I want to because it was triple booked and all that stuff, whatever. And I always love the in-depth, I love the one-on-ones, right? Because you mm. really get to tell your story. People really get to see past what you're, you know, you're presenting and really get to learn you as a person. And that's what like started that um, journey. And in doing so, I've experienced where, you know, I get to go to different places and people recognize because I've done so many episodes of Things of Nature. But then also the impact that you get to have and getting that information is, is, is a two-way impact, like you said. They get to see what you're doing, but then you also get to get real feedback in time and different options pop up when they're available. Like I have a, a show I'm working on for season two. It's called The Ugly Side of Entrepreneurship. 
I had literally sat down and what inspired it was talking to all the other different entrepreneurs along with uh, being an entrepreneur myself and then also shows like you know Shark Tank and you know The Profit um those shows like really get to spin it in a way and I get it because it's on network television in a more positive light mm. but I don't think people get to really see the nitty-gritty like all the stuff that you had to go through to even get your business to the point where it's at now all those challenges, you know what I'm saying? Being able to stand up to that adversity and push past that. Those are the conversations that I like to highlight. Yeah. And in doing so, uh, one of them I haven't released yet uh, here is about a woman who went through PR and worked for a magazine down here. And they eventually brought it uh, to her to where she can buy it. She buys the magazine, but now people are looking at her funny because she didn't grow, go through the traditional, I guess, uh, credentialing process of you know, being like a journalist and writing and all that stuff, whatever. She came from the PR side. So she had to face that adversity and she changed the scope of the magazine. It was a little bit more inclusive with a certain group of audience. Now it's, uh, I mean, it was a little bit exclusive. Now it's more inclusive and mm. having all different backgrounds and ethnicities and stuff like that being featured within the magazine on the cover all that stuff and it has a more broader appeal to everyone but she had to go through you know different sponsorships pulling out and stuff like that because she was changing the face of it people you know looking at her like you know she's not worthy of to run you know what i'm saying that type of platform mm -hmm. because she didn't rise from a you know journalistic standpoint and i thought it was amazing and you know people telling their stories and that's why I was thinking of that show. I was like, you know what? This is something that people need to see. So I put out the first two episodes and I got to go finish the rest of season one. Um, and people are loving it. I'm like, oh That's man, I awesome. love this stuff. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's things like that, you know, that I get to experience and I love. And I didn't know that, you know, podcasting would turn into like this whole media and content creation thing. Um, I love it. I enjoy it. I do skits and all sorts of stuff. I've developed characters and stuff to help sell businesses and help sell products and to bring recognition stuff to it. So it's just amazing. Um, That's I, awesome. I don't, that I don't is the myself. one uh -huh. hidden thing I think a lot of people don't understand about starting a podcast mm -hmm. is first off, you get to build this amazing connection with the audience. But beyond mm -hmm. that, you get to connect with people that you wouldn't normally get to connect with and have, build mm -hmm. these relationships mm -hmm. at a much higher level than you normally can. And it's just, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it opens a lot of doors. It's incredible. It does. Um, and even like my episodes now, like this episode with you and finding services to where you can connect to even more people and investing mm. in that and like being able to have access to folks and have these type of conversations. I love them. I love them all the time. I love having, you know, conversations like this and people seeing the work that others are doing. Because, you know, that's the whole reason I started moving in the direction that I wanted to move in anyway. I always, I have a, a small businesses, you know, have a hold of my heart. And it's hard starting a business, as you yeah. know, and, you know, executing the business. And they don't necessarily have all the resources, you know, to be able to get the looks that they need to be able to sustain themselves. When a lot of them think about marketing, not as far as you know, having that budget. <laughs> so it's it's amazing doing that, but then you know, being able to help people, encourage them, 
people come on the show, they start uh, interacting with those people, start, you know, building relationships with them, eventually leads to sales and they're able to sustain and all that. And to, uh, you know, have that sense of confidence to be able to walk away from uh, a meeting, a situation like this, where they can now go out and be more recognized and start to, you know, go towards their ultimate goal. So I love it. I don't, I don't see where I'll stop podcasting and producing content. I've actually shot content for others now. I've gotten into that. I never thought that I would do videography and editing as much as I, uh, well, actually, I didn't even think about it like two years ago. <laughs> now, this seems like it takes up at least 40 to 60% of my time now. <laughs> wow. What a nice shift. That's awesome. Uh, I really do appreciate your time. I know you're a busy man and you're out here solving an incredible uh, problem that we have in the country. Uh, I would definitely love to have you back on later on and see you know, yeah. how further along that y'all been able to come. Uh, but if anyone wants to learn about you know, y'all's journey, uh, you know, if members are in the location or just want to hear about the podcast, any of that, where they need to go. Yeah, the best place to go is our website. It's norhart.com. That's N-O-R-H. A-R-T.com. And there, if you click on shows, you can see our shows. And if you go to invest, that's where you can learn about how you can earn a 10% APY with some of our new investment products. So great way to get a great stable rate of return and um, earn some money in your capital. That's what's up. I love it. So everybody out there, you can go to norhart.com. And like I said, Mike, appreciate it. Thank you for your time. And, you know, like you dropped a lot of genes for everybody.